Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting January 24th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, some good news about coffee from Roger Clemens. Not the pitcher, the Roger Clemens, who has a doctorate in public health. He's got the good news about coffee. Not like bad news about coffee would stop you from drinking it, but you can drink it guilt-free for the most part. And Scientific American Editor-in-Chief John Rennie talks about the recent Skeptics Conference he attended and spoke at in Las Vegas, home of the cold science of statistics. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Roger A. Clemens. He's an adjunct professor in the School of Pharmacy at the University of Southern California. And he's a regular columnist at the publication Food Technology, where he recently wrote a piece called Coffee and Health, Surprisingly Good News. The column summarizes findings presented at the recent International Conference on Coffee Science in France. I caught up with Clemens in Irvine, California. Hello, Dr. Clemens. How are you today? Good morning, Steve. Coffee for the last few years has has really been getting a lot of good press compared to you know, some negative press and some good press in the years before that. Has it just been a function of more research being done? The research into food in relationship to health is has grown considerably, and obviously the research here for coffee is part of that. Let's talk about some of the specifics related to specific conditions that are in your article. And for, for most of these things, we're usually talking about a moderate coffee intake, something like three, four, five cups a day. Indeed, for the moderate cup of coffee, we can have uh, some benefits, uh, health benefits associated with them. On the other hand, and some of the epidemiological data and, and even some of the pro- prospective uh, cohort uh, data, if some of the outcomes really require as much as 10 cups of coffee a day. All right. And when you get to those higher levels, you might see some effects that you don't necessarily want, like, you know, just jitteriness to a, to a big degree. Yes. Every component in every food has its ups and it has its downs. Uh, for some people, they may well react in having the jitteriness and the tachycardia, the nausea and the hyperventilation with large doses of coffee. Others, on the other hand, seem to tolerate it quite well, and those individuals appear in some of the research studies that have been published in the peer-reviewed uh, literature, uh, suggest they actually may have some benefits. But typically, to your earlier comment, uh, we typically see benefits in the three to four to six cups of coffee a day. Okay, so let's talk some specifics. Uh, you, you cite a reduced risk of adult diabetes associated with drinking coffee. So there have been a number of prospective studies conducted over the last uh, 10 or so years reported basically in the literature in the last five years. Of those studies, about two-thirds of them associated are associated or demonstrate actually or suggest that there is an inverse relationship between the coffee consumption and diabetes. Inverse relationship means that if they if you consume more than three to six cups of coffee a day for prolonged periods of time, that, that your risk of presenting type 2 diabetes is markedly reduced. So that's the inverse relationship. And that looks like it's a, a caffeine-free association, that it's actually the other ingredients in coffee, the other compounds in coffee, and not the caffeine. It may well be those other compounds. And how the coffee is actually brewed or how the coffee is actually prepared. And you also cite a, uh, some evidence for 
a reduced cancer risk that's probably also associated with the presence of the antioxidants in coffee? There's so many components uh, in coffee. To know that it's actually specific to the antioxidants has not been um, clearly delineated. What we do see that uh, the, those who drink coffee are at a lower risk for those versus those who don't drink coffee in terms of presenting symptoms as a uh, colorectal cancer or hepatic cancer or any type of hepatic or liver injury. So it's really quite interesting to see what coffee and some of its components may have. Again, it comes back to not only these components that are upon the coffee, but how the coffee is actually prepared. You uh, you bring up an interesting point. Coffee is an amazingly complex beverage. It's an extraordinarily complex uh, beverage. Not quite as complex as, say, an orange juice or a fruit nectar, yet there are components in there that really have drug-like or pharmacological-like properties, and those some of those properties have been clearly identified. Other properties have not been identified. Having identified some of those properties helps us to understand how caffeine and some of these other components may work or may not work. And clearly, caffeine is one of those that, that has definite pharmacological properties. It does indeed. Uh, caffeine is clearly a drug at some uh, high doses. When you want it consuming, and now it pours, uh, 200 milligrams a day, which is a, more than 300, uh, uh, excuse me, more than three cups of coffee a day, typically. Uh, indeed, the caffeine at these levels uh, can uh, function as a drug and, and work as a drug on a variety of organ systems. And one of the the studies or one of the uh, results that you discuss in the column, and that is a caffeine-associated result, is a reduced Parkinson's disease risk. These uh, these kinds of data were come out of the Asian environments. Um, they compared uh, a number of a large number of individuals who presented the disease and those who did not present the, the disease relative to consuming, say, three to four cups of coffee a day. These kinds of studies were also evaluated here in the United States. That is with the Nurses' Health Study. That was over a 16-year period. They also looked at a study called the Cancer Prevention Study, uh, which involved a large number of individuals, I think over 500,000 individuals, so men and women here in the United States, who examined coffee consumption relative to the presentation of Parkinson's disease and mortality. It appears in these large studies, these are epidemiological studies and not clinical studies, the data would suggest that there's, in fact, an inverse relationship uh, between the presentation of Parkinson's disease and the consumption of coffee. And earlier comment as well is that how caffeine may work as a drug. Part of this is we understand neurochemistry, that is how caffeine affects the function of the brain, that it may well be that there's some components of the caffeine directly or someone's metabolized because caffeine is metabolized in the liver that may actually have some impact on how the brain develops and how it presents. Uh, the, the receptor sites that are there uh, really unique uh, to caffeine because of what we know what the pharmacological impacts may be. We also see that, in fact, in some cases, this may be modulated, this effect may be modulated differently in men and in women. And the various scientists who studied this suggest this may be some estrogenic uh, affect the clarity or the the points of discussion and the points of, of the need further investigation have, have not been delineated. 
But it's interesting to speculate at this time that how how to identify and how to how these uh, caffeine and some of its components behave neurologically to prevent the risk of this disease. So st- still a lot of research to to do, obviously. If coffee were just discovered, how how do you think it would be received? If let's say it were discovered and then analyzed prior to it being released as a popular beverage. Uh, that's a very intriguing question. If f- coffee were just discovered and, and analyzed and released as a beverage, I would suspect that uh, although coffee is natural uh, under the current regulations, it may not be on the any market in the world uh, from a regulatory perspective because of its potentially potent pharmacological impact. So it it may uh, still be under study for another 15 years before the FDA decided to release it to the public, and and then maybe by prescription only? Well, that's uh, it's intriguing to think about that. Let's talk for just a moment about something that I've noticed, I'm sure a lot of people notice, that when people go into some of the more popular coffee stores in the country, coffee uh, bars, a lot of what they're buying that they might think is a cup of coffee is actually... It's actually a milkshake. I mean, there, there are some concoctions that you can find at Starbucks, for example, that must have 800 calories in them. Now, that's that you're not going to get the same kind of health benefits as as uh, a cup of black coffee might have from from downing two or three of these a day. Indeed, that's an interesting remark. Not to pick on Starbucks, but just the coffee industry at large, the various cocktails that are have become so popular with the American public, and I think internationally, uh, indeed, the potential health benefits of coffee by itself um, are some may be compromised by the other components that are added, though so the full-fat milk, for example, is, is a clacky, or even the various flavorings and the, the high-carbohydrate content. Clearly, when you start looking at these cocktails, which, again, the American public and even children have come to appreciate uh, the calorie load themselves offset, could potentially offset the, the health benefits on the other end. Dr. Clemens, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Roger Clemens' column on coffee is available in the January issue of Food Technology, published by the Society for Food Science and Technology's Institute of Food Technologists. It's free at www.if T.org. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, speaking of coffee, material scientists have created a self-cleaning coffee cup. Story two, a female chimp at a sanctuary in Louisiana had a baby chimp, even though all the male chimps had been vasectomized. Story three, three species of tropical beetles never before seen north of Florida have been found on the streets of New York City during this virtually snowless winter. And story four, the Weather Channel and a U.S. senator are in a nasty war of words over global warming. We'll be back with the answer, but first... Scientific American Editor-in-Chief John Rennie spent the weekend at a conference devoted to skepticism, and what better place to hold a skepticism conference than Las Vegas, the place where dreams go to get slapped around. Anyway, to find out more, I called John upon his return to the innocent wonderland that is New York. Hi, John. How are you? Hi, Steve. So you're just back from Vegas. where I, I hear you were splitting fives at the blackjack table and really ticking a lot of people off. 
Steve, what can I tell you? I'm a whale in Vegas. <laughs> so, so what exactly were you doing there, and uh, and what do you have to report to our audience? Uh, I am freshly returned from the Amazing Meeting Five. Uh, this is the fifth of the meetings for the skeptic community organized by the James Randi Educational uh, Foundation, and uh, the theme of this year's meeting was skepticism and the media. And James Randi, of course, the Amazing Randi. For- amazing Randi, uh, well, well known as a. Uh, Somebody who's been busting flim-flam artists, uh, psychics, um, uh, basically for many years. Uh, he's a bane of Yuri Geller. Somebody who's, who's made uh, his reputation as, uh, as an enemy of all kinds of uh, paranormal con artists. Right. So hence the name of the conference, The Amazing Exactly. So, uh, so what exactly was going on there at, at the Amazing Five? Well, uh, it was a really, a, a very, very entertaining meeting, a gathering of uh, 800 skeptics, which uh, at one point in the meeting they were saying was the largest skeptics meeting that had ever been held, which was interesting. Yeah, um, how do you not have a two-hour uh, debate then when somebody makes a claim like that at a skeptics meeting? I think every once in a while they just assume they're going to take something on faith, or maybe they just research it rigorously after the fact. But I don't know. This is my first. Okay. Uh, But uh, they had a a great uh, selection of guests who were coming in talking about a lot of different subjects, about both uh, credulous subjects that are in the media and how they often get uh, covered, and uh, also really subjects relating to science and the future of science. So it was great. So we had, for example, uh, Michael Shermer, who's the president of the Skeptic Society and a columnist for Scientific American. Uh, He was writing about uh, the neuroevolutionary roots of economic behavior, which is something he's got uh, a book uh, in the works on. Uh, Eugenie Scott uh, um, was uh, there talking about the history of the evolution-creationism conflict and um, history of scientific creationism and, uh, uh, of course, the, the Kitzmiller the Dover case, uh, which was very much in the news. Um, we had uh, Neil Gershenfeld from uh, MIT. Uh, he was re- there uh, talking about the amazing project that he's overseeing involving the creation of these things called fab labs. Uh, fab labs are basically uh, fairly low-cost prototyping systems that make it possible for uh, anybody, even children, to basically come up with an idea for something and then just immediately build it. And it's really something that uh, has a, a potentially revolutionary implications for uh, innovation and the future of technological development and economies. Uh, Penn and Teller were there to, uh, I think, bring a little more entertainment to all of it. Uh, the psychologist Richard Wiseman was there telling us about the search for the funniest joke, um, which uh, I don't know was entirely successful in coming up with a truly funny joke, but still... Um, that was uh, that. That was very good. Yeah, we lampooned that search in in the magazine three or four years ago already. That's right. Uh, but it was very good. Uh, uh, Dr. Phil Plate, who's uh, well known as the bad astronomer, um, doing the bad astronomy website and so forth. He was there talking about the uh, the people who believe uh, that the moon landing was all a hoax. <laughs> that is bad astronomy. That is bad astronomy. He was answering a lot of the usual objections, the the bad evidence that uh, that people present. Right. Um, and uh, Adam Savage of uh, the, the TV show Mythbusters uh, was uh, was on t- talking about uh, that and. Mythbusters is actually a fairly potent force uh, for the uh, subject of of skepticism and scientific investigation. And uh, we even had uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, who uh, uh, who are the creators of South Park, and uh, 
Penn Jillette was introducing them, he felt that they were actually the most powerful voice of skepticism uh, in, in the country in the past five years. Yeah, they have done a lot of debunking on South Park. For example, John Edwards, uh, the episode where John Edwards is, is uh, sort of taking a task for talking to the dead, allegedly. Now, that's right. Well, in fact, uh, you know, Penn Jillette had, had, had sing, singled, singled out that particular uh, thing that they had done as, as the best debunking of John Edward. And uh, on stage, uh, Trey and Matt were actually acknowledging that really they, they cribbed everything that uh, they had Stan saying from uh, Randy's comments on his own website about that. Uh, interesting. And what were you talking about there? Um, well, I was talking about Scientific American's own history of... Uh, debunking uh, over the years, and particularly I was focusing on uh, back in the 1920s when Scientific American put together these investigative committees to check up on both a a particular medical fraud called the uh, electronic reactions of Abrams and uh, also uh, this uh, investigation of spiritualism that it was doing with Harry Houdini. And did we offer some kind of a prize back then? Or? Yes, um, actually, the uh, we were offering uh, $5,000 in prizes, two $2,500 prizes, uh, one uh, which would go to the first persuasive photograph of some sort of ectoplasmic emanation, uh, and uh, another 2500 for some other physical evidence, uh, some physical demonstration to the satisfaction of the investigative committee. So that $5,000 was put in the bank in 1920, and we're all getting paid off the interest. On it. <laughs> they, they never did pay that out. Actually, it's funny. The In a sense, uh, James Randi is carrying on the tradition of, of that today, because uh, for some time now, he and the Educational Foundation have been offering their own million-dollar challenge. Um, basically, they've thrown down the gauntlet uh, to uh, John Edwards and Sylvia Brown and uh, uh, Yuri Geller and all all the other psychics out there are basically saying that all they have to do is just uh, demonstrate uh, their their abilities under the controlled setting that uh, the foundation will set up, and uh, they can walk away with a million dollars. And so far, none of them are uh, stepping forward to take that challenge, which was actually leads to to maybe the 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 biggest piece of news that. Uh, came out of uh, the meeting was an announcement uh, by James Randi that uh, they have decided to step up the pressure associated with uh, this million-dollar challenge. Um, so far, they basically they've put the challenge out there, and they've been fairly passive about leaving it to these, uh, uh, these uh, psychics to step forward. Um, and now it sounds like uh, the... Uh, the uh, James Randi Educational Foundation is going to put a lot more pressure on these uh, psychics, more directly challenging them to come forward and do this. And, um, and in fact, uh, also starting to look into the question of whether there may be uh, class action suits that would be appropriate to bring against uh, some kinds of psychics who've been making claims and accepting money uh, for uh, uh, what are ultimately fraudulent uh, uh, claims of paranormal ability. And we should also castigate any media outlets that put these people on. Well, I think that's very much, uh, the, one of the messages that, uh, the, uh, the amazing meeting wants to convey is that, that far too much of the media does, uh, just become very credulous in the, in the face of these claims. They just, they, they, they treat it, um, as though this is real. In fact, that often that they would be just described as uh, fake psychics, for example, when the point of uh, the, the Randy Foundation would be it's like, look, there are no real psychics. Right. <laughs> so. 
is is this an annual meeting in Vegas? Is it always in Vegas? Uh, it is an annual meeting. Um, this is the first time I've attended. I believe it has always been in Vegas, and I know they're planning to hold the uh, next one there uh, in uh, uh, next year. So um, it's uh, really a lot of fun, and I would certainly recommend it to uh, any other skeptically-minded folks who are in the audience. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, John. Thank you, Steve. For more on the Skeptics Conference from John Rennie, check out his entry at our blog, blog.siam.com. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, self-cleaning coffee cup. Story two, female chimp has baby despite presence of only vasectomized males. Story three, three species of tropical beetles never before seen north of South Florida found on the streets of New York City. And story four, U.S. Senator and Weather Channel throwing lightning bolts at each other. Time's up. Story four is true. Some heated exchanges recently about global warming between the office of Senator James Inhofe and the Weather Channel, which apparently thinks global warming is real. Inhofe, not so much. It's all very bizarre and somewhat entertaining, and you can read about it on our blog, entry of January 18th, blog.siam.com. Story one is true. Researchers have come up with a self-cleaning cup. Microscopic pillars on the surface drive water away, taking dirt with it. Hopefully the cup holds the coffee in one place long enough to drink it. You can hear more about the self-cleaning cup on the January 22nd edition of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. Story two is true. A chimp at a place called Chimp Haven in Shreveport, Louisiana, gave birth despite the lack of any males who had not had vasectomies. Well, sometimes those vasectomies just don't take. DNA testing is ongoing, and the unlucky male will make a second trip to the operating room. All of which means that story three about the tropical beetles found in New York City is totally bogus. But what is true is that there is a species of beetle that is as white as the driven snow, and researchers have figured out what makes it so white has to do with the structure of the protein fibers in its scales. The finding could lead to whiter whites where whiter whites are wanted. For more, check out the January 18th news story, Brilliant Whiteness of Strange Beetle Explained. That's on our website, www www.siam.com slash news. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. Check out news articles at our website, www.siam.com. The daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. And check out Mind Matters, the new expert-written seminar blog on the sciences of mind and brain. That's updated weekly at the Scientific American Mind website, www.siammind.com. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. <laughs>